Good morning. Bring you Christian greetings in the Lord's name this morning. I was just thinking about that this morning on the way down here from Ryan's place. That I've lived in Minnesota about 25 years and I don't think I've ever been here before. I don't know what's taken me so long, but um, we're only five hours away, five and a half hours away, something like that. But looking forward to this week of getting to know some of you, brethren, in a better way as we travel down to Texas. Uh, for those of you behind, you can pray for pray for us in traveling mercies and the Lord to bless our hands, not just to meet the needs of the people down there, but to meet their hearts as well. Jesus so oftentimes used their physical needs as a way to speak to their hearts, and that's the endeavor we have this morning. When I was finishing up high school, I worked at a little place called Concordia Language Villages, and it was basically a place where you could go and live in another country without leaving the United States. And it was run by a religious organization, but it was by no means a godly place. But one summer they put up an old pop machine next to the break room, and they started keeping pop in there for us to buy. And I didn't like staying up in the break room where they would often have, because it was mostly filled with people who called themselves Christians. But um, they... Almost every time I stayed up there, there was always a way of, they seemed to have fun poking at the beliefs we held dear, and I found it more comfortable to go down um, and drink my coffee and eat my donut down at the um, basement, thank you brother, uh, where there was guys that had made no claim, no profession of Christianity. And, uh, but one day... Henry was having his afternoon cigarette down there, and he watched me go upstairs and get my usual pop that I often would buy one in the afternoon. And I came downstairs, he kind of looked at me and just chuckled a little bit, and he says, Jay, you're, you're just a pop-drinking fool. And I had never heard that term before, and it kind of took me back. And I remember being shocked because I have never been called a fool before, and I had never, <laughs> um, maybe some people should have, that's beside the point, um, but I remember being shocked because I had uh, memorized Matthew 5, 6, and 7 like a lot of people in school do. And so my mind immediately clicked and I go, uh, Henry, I wouldn't be going around calling people fools. He kind of looked at me, why not? And I said, well, because when Jesus was here, when he walked this earth, he, he warned us that, that if we call other people fools, we're, we're endangering ourselves of hellfire. He was quiet for a little bit, and he goes, where does it say that? I don't believe it. Well, I had my New Testament out in the car, so I went out and I found it, and I brought it back, and I gave it to him to read, and, and he read it once, and read it again. Finally, he just jammed it back, and he says, I don't believe it. And I responded, well, it's God's word. And whether he believes or not, it doesn't change the fact that it's God's word. And he turned, he jabbed his, jabbed his finger at me, and he says, Well, my grandma was a religious woman. She read her Bible every day. She didn't allow us to cuss or swear. She allowed no drinking or smoking in the house. But she called us little fools running around the house all the time. Are you saying she's in hell? How would you respond? 
Um, I, I wish I always had an answer, and many times I don't, okay? So if you're feeling in that little tight spot, I don't know what I would say. I don't. But I think that God sometimes gives us the answers in there, and I feel that the Lord gave me the answer that day. He gave an answer beyond my understanding of the time. I responded, Henry, it is not for me to, to determine where your grandmother spends eternity. That is only God to decide. But he has given us his word. And it means what it says. And I don't want to be one who ignores something so plain just because I saw someone else who I respect doing something different. This morning I'd like to share about the clarity and absolute stability of God's truth. But first we need to define the terms because there's been the saying that says, he who defines the terms wins the argument. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'd like to define some of these terms a little bit this morning. Uh, what is truth? What is truth? Because this is a big question. A lot of people have a question. What is truth? And it's very nebulous in this world today what truth is. And so I think there's two types of truth we're going to look at this morning. One is absolute truth. And the other is relative truth. Absolute truth is based on something that does not change. It, it is uh, rock solid, it's, and it's tied to reality. If someone um, wants to try and argue that there is no such thing as gravity, um, the rest of us know that reality teaches us there is something that holds us down to this earth. And uh, absolute truth is something that is true for all people, in all places, in all times. It's just true. Relative truth, on the other hand, is not tied to reality hardly at all. Uh, it is subject to change depending on a person's circumstances or their experiences. Um, if something is useful to you, then it tends to be true to you. For example, we talked about riches this morning. I heard the testimony of a man who... He was 81 years old and he was still working 70 hours a week. He was wealthy beyond all imagination that we would have here. By, by all standards, he was wealthy. Um, and he, but he did not take any time to enjoy his wealth. He just always kept working on it. And someone asked him, why don't you, why don't you just relax? You're... you're old now. You're, you're not going to be able to take it with you. Why don't you enjoy what you have? And he says, when I left the projects down in Chicago, I turned and I walked across those tracks and looked back and I said, I am going to get as far from that as I can. And I'm still going. Now, some people might say that getting money is the most important thing in life. Is that true? Did that man feel that it was true? He felt it was because he'd grown up poor, and so thus to him the most important thing in life is I don't ever want to be back there again. I want to make sure I always have enough riches to get there. And so for him, it may have been kind of true. But how many people have gotten to the end of life having pursued the money dream and realized there's nothing here? It's not true. It's empty. It's void. It doesn't satisfy. And so thus, absolute truth is not tied to reality. It's tied to my perception. 
It's tied to my experiences. And relative truth ceases to become a standard of right and wrong, and it becomes simply an expression of my personal tastes. Relative truth. So we have these two things, absolute truth, relative truth. So the question is, is there an absolute truth? Because if I want to build my life upon something, I don't want to build it upon something that's shifting, it's going to shake and move depending on how people perceive things. I want to have my life built on something that doesn't change. And if so, what is what can I base it on that will not change with time? Now, I reckon we're all here, we all know where this is going, but I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves of this in our changing world. Um, there is only one thing that does not change. Absolutely only one thing that does not change, and that is God. Anything else you build on is going to be shifting sands, and you're going to end up with a broken, cracked house sooner or later. Malachi 3, verse 6 says, I am the Lord, like, Lord thy God, I change not. Numbers 23:19 says, God says, Am I a God that I should lie? If I say something, will I not do it? Psalms 90, verse 1 says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou formedest the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I don't know if you can get anything bigger than that. From eternity that way to eternity that way, to have someone who spans all of that and does not change, to me, is about as solid as you can get. God is the same from before the earth was and, and until it is no more, and he is still the same today. Do we believe that? But there are people that run from that, that God doesn't really mean what he says. And you can deny that. You can run from it as much as you want, but sooner or later you're going to come face to face with that. And I hope you do it here where you have time to repent before you do it here, here in the hereafter when you don't. Everything else will change, but sometime or another, God will never, never change. So, if God is the only basis for what can be absolutely true, is there any good in that if there's no way of knowing what truth is, what, what God is? I, I sat down one night with a young man. at. Um, we talked at 2.30 in the morning at the restaurant there. And he was saying that God is different. The way you perceive God is different than the way I perceive God. There's no way that one person or even just a group of people can really know who God is. And so thus you have no way of determining whether, you, what, whether what you believe is true or not. And my heart ached for that young man. And we went round and round. But what had happened was he had made up in his mind that this is who God was. And there was nothing going to change that reality that he had. And I thought to myself, what kind of a despotic God would ask us to build our life on him and obey him, but then get, make it impossible for us to understand that? I would not want to serve his God. That would be a cruel taskmaster. I'll get into a little more of that later. What does Jesus say about his knowledge, about understanding truth, knowing truth? 
John 4.23. I'm going to give you a lot of verses. You don't have to turn to all of them if you want, but you can. Um, John 4.23. But the time is coming, and now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to worship, to be his worshipers. God is a spirit, and the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is sounding like God is expecting this of us. He's expecting us to understand what truth is and to know it because when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the Samaritan well, he's telling her, this is, day is coming. Now, let me ask you, is that day here? Absolutely. This is that time that he's talking about. And God is saying, we need to worship him in spirit and in truth. I could spend more time camping on this, but um, so if you want to meditate on that, what does it mean to be worshiped God in spirit and in truth. Think about that. John 8:31. Then Jesus said to the Jews which believed on him, and I'm just going to pause here real quick second. This is in a, this verses that I'm taking out is in a whole mixture where the Jews were kind of angry and they they kept trying to bait him into questions. And then after a while, all of a sudden it said a bunch of the Jews started believing on him. And then this is what Jesus said. Jesus said to the Jews which believed on him, "If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed." And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And these very same people who are believing on him, all of a sudden, they got riled up. You say we're in bondage. We've never been in bondage to anybody. And then they went off, and these same people, just a few verses later, tried stoning Jesus. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now this word know, when it's used in... in when I looked up in the Greek, it means to know intimately, to know fully, to um, have a thorough understanding of. It doesn't sound like something nebulous to me. It sounds something very clear, very, no. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and it is through that knowledge you will become free. Free from the sin that so easily besets us. Free from those, those chains which, which hold us down. It is through the knowledge of Jesus. It is through the truth of Jesus that, that sets us free. John 14, verse 5 says, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is saying, here, if we want to understand truth, we need to seek to understand Jesus. When we understand Jesus we, and we seek to follow him, it will cost us something. Just as we talked about in our Sunday school lesson this morning as the adults, it will cost us a lot. Physically. But the rewards are exponentially, spiritually. And when we know him, we will understand him. We'll, he will... I, I get ahead of myself. He will open himself up to us. And reveal himself to us. But the Pharisees, did they really want to know Jesus? When they ask all these questions, did they really want to know truth? Jesus also said in his high priestly prayer, when he was praying for us, you know, Jesus' prayer is kind of um, based in three sections. First section when he's talking to Heavenly Father about his relationship with him and how he has fulfilled what God sent him here to do. Second section is he's praying for his own immediate disciples. And the third 
is all of those who have come afterwards who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ because of his disciples' report. And when Jesus was praying for us, he said, I pray that you would not take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Thy word is truth. We have here God's truth. It's a chain. God doesn't change. We established that. God has given us his word to reveal himself to us. And his word is truth. And last passage here, John 16, verse 7, starts out with this way. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. But of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear... That he shall speak, and he will show you the things to come. This is very comforting to me, because in my seek and my desire to know who God is, I'm grateful that God gave us his Holy Spirit to guide us into his truth. So when the Holy Spirit will come, he will guide you into truth. He opens our eyes to understand the things that are hidden from the skeptic. The things that are hidden from the agnostic who don't want to believe anyways. The things that were hidden from the Pharisees. God's Spirit opens our eyes to understand those things and, and to grow and to be fed from them. And I've been serving the Lord for many years now. And I continually be astounded at how little I know of this Word. Every time you go back, there's something else that's there. The Lord continues to feed us, to help us to grow and guide us. He's the one that guides us into all truth. And this is what I, where I see the loving hand of God guiding us in life because he expects us to understand him but he gives us the tools we need so we can understand him so we can base our lives on that truth you know it, it really stood out to me as I was raising my children and I have quite a few of them but then they're getting older now but when I had a lot of little people you know it was it would have been very unkind of me as a father to expect perfection from them they're little. They're growing. And I understand that. And I'm willing to extend some grace to them. But as they get older, the expectations, I encourage them to keep going. But I also sp seek to spend time teaching them what is right and what is wrong, what they should or shouldn't do. It became abundantly clear to me that I had not done a very good job when my one little daughter went and she tried to lick snow off of a frozen metal chair in the yard and she didn't know better than to not yank it off and she left a piece of her tongue behind and I remember looking at her and saying well you know better we told you not to do that right this is later after it was all done I said don't you remember that no now wait a minute I had told my children a few years earlier but she'd have been one year old at the time she wouldn't remember that 
I was expecting her to know something that she didn't know. And that's when I realized I failed as a father. I hadn't given her the tools she needed to safely eat snow. (laughs) So to speak. Does God ever do that with us? Does he fail ever to give us what we need to know so we don't make those mistakes? No. He is our Heavenly Father. He cares for us way more effectively than what I care for my children, as hard as I may try. And he has also given us an example to to follow. He sent his son down here to walk before us, to show us how to do this. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. Why has he done all this? So that we may know the truth. And through the truth of who God is, And what he calls us to do, through the power of what he did on the cross, we can be free and we can walk differently. It is upon this truth that we can base our lives. And our lives will never be shaken, no matter what happens in this world, with this presidency, with this all the war and turmoil and everything else that's out there. We can base our lives on this and it will not change. That's absolute truth. I'd like to look a little bit more at relative truth because I think relative truth is something that we all will face if not on a daily basis on a regular basis as we interact with the world around us why? because relative truth is what is controlling our world today I'm going to give you just one example take Syria right now Okay, this is way over there it's not anything personal Just it's over in the Middle East You know, President Obama and President Trump, they believe that the president of Assad in Assyria, that he was a tyrant and he should be removed. Um, I don't know what the amount of people that he killed personally, but in the turmoil over there since then, up through last year, over 400,000 people have died. These are Syrians. 400,000 Syrians have died. A lot of them at President Assad's hand trying to wipe out those who disagree with him. So, you have President Trump and and, uh, Obama both were in agreement that he should be removed. But now you have another president in Russia who says, no, he's just doing what he thinks is necessary to keep control of his country. And they have two different perspectives. Which one's true? I'd like to ask you a question. They each believe that their side is right. Correct? For some reason or other. They probably both believe that they have a reason for, for doing what they do. But let me ask you this. Would President Trump respond differently than Assad if there was an uprising here in the U.S. like there was in Assyria? Would he, would he then feel differently about the situation? Well, now his experiences have changed. Now it's no longer on the other side of the world that doesn't really affect me. It's now here in my own backyard. What happened? We had a civil war here in the United States. Over 600,000 people were killed here in our own country by our various governments in war. So now, do do you see how relative truth plays into that? 
it's okay for us to say, no, you can't do it over there, but I still need to be able to do it here in our country. But relative truth has a very, very close cousin. It's called tolerance. Tolerance. Relative truth says, what you believe to be true may not be true for me. What I believe to be true may not be true for you. Therefore, if neither one of us can really... If our, if our truths are different, then tolerance must be extended to each other. This is exactly what was happening at the end of Judges. The last verse of Judges, you remember what that says? And every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's absolute, it, it's, it's relative truth. I do what's, what I think is right, you do what you think is right, and we let it go. Was God happy with that? Did God appreciate that? I'd like to remind us, if we're going to base our lives upon the, the absolute truth of God's word, there we will be seen as the biggest threat to those who push for relative truth. We will be uh, the biggest threat when we live for God's truth to those who want to believe in, in relative truth. Because what we have today is we have a battle for truth in our churches. We have a battle for truth in our society, which is true about marriage. What is true about abortion? And we have people trying to pit these things against each other. And the reason it's such a battle is because one has God as a judge, because he's the established order of author of truth, and the other one lets man in charge for now. And that sounds really good to us because if I get to be the arbitrator of truth, then I'll never be wrong. And that feels good. But it wreaks havoc in our world and in our lives and in our whole society. Do you understand that most people today realize, believe that truth is unattainable? There is no such thing as truth anymore because relative truth has been used and lived for so long. Even Pilate, back when Jesus was, um, be, was, was on trial, he had the same question. When he looked at Jesus and says, what is truth? There are some people that just, that just don't understand um, that they believe that truth is very ambiguous. And I believe that that is exactly where Satan wants us to be. Satan doesn't want us to base upon the truth of God's word. He wants us to throw everything up in the air and be kind of, you never really know. Because God is clear. God is the author of light. Satan is the author of confusion. And it is his desire to minimize and tear down the stability of God's truth. In this battle for truth, Satan has two primary weapons. I just want to speak in this... I'm closing here. Uh, he has two primary weapons. The first one is uncertainty. Just talked a little bit about that. But from the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Satan sought to take the clear speaking, the clear standard of God, and to cloud it. Has God really said? Are you sure about that? 
I mean, after all, it's been translated so many thousands of times over all these years in so many different versions. How can you really know what God said today? Have you ever heard people say that about Scripture? It's been translated so many times, you don't really know what God said. Satan was doing the same thing back there in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said? He gives the implication, God's hiding something from you. God didn't really mean what he said. He's just hiding something from you. And he seeks to sow that seed of doubt into our minds. Satan said that with, with Eve. Because God didn't want you to know, because when the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. I think of the Pharisees asking very similar questions. They asked questions of Jesus not so they could know. Satan didn't ask the question in the Garden of Eden so he could know. Like he didn't hear. The Pharisees asked questions. And their questions they asked were not so they might truly know and understand, but so they might trap Jesus in a technicality. And brothers and sisters, we still do that. People still do that today. They it doesn't take much wisdom to try and cast a doubt on something. I have sat in um, classes. I have sat in Sunday school lessons. Not here. Um, where all we want to do is we want to just kind of run these things to extremes just to take, take a clear teaching of God's truth and just kind of run away off over here in the corner and see this isn't going to work and there we throw out the whole thing because it's not going to work. Or then, then that does, that, we kind of deal with that. Then, then it's off on this side and, and it's back and forth. And You know, years ago I used to listen to talk radio before the Lord convicted me of that. And um, that's another story. But... Um, that is what a lot of the world focuses on now. All the talking heads out there, they're all just pulling things up, chewing it apart, trying to, trying to make what is pretty plain, trying to pull it all apart and find all these little nuances. And, and basically when you're all done with it, it's kind of like, I don't know what I just heard. And it all becomes a bunch of talking confusion. And nothing's really true anymore because you can't trust anybody. It does take wisdom, though, to see the heart of God on a matter and be able to explain it to a skeptical world. That is the skill we should be called reading. When we know truth and we know God in such a way, we should be seeking to take his truth and communicating it to the world around us in a way that they can understand. But it won't be pleasant because now we threaten their view of truth and they don't, and often don't appreciate that. So the first tool that Satan tries to destroy truth with is, um, is uncertainty. The second one is relativism. We talked a little bit about this. And relativism is when we use our experiences or others' actions to question the clear teachings of God's word. And this is what my coworker from many years ago tried to do. God's, did, well, is God's word fairly clear that we should not be calling people a fool? What do you think? Is it clear? Now, I realize that there could be more to this verse than that. But I think, I think there's some warning in this, how we talk to other people. And so, but, but 
from my co-worker's standpoint, his grandmother was a godly woman. And she most certainly went to heaven. So if she went to heaven, then this must not be true. Do you see how, do you see how I'm getting there? Um, my, father, my, my father taught a series of messages on divorce and remarriage. And, um, and I remember my great-uncle was visiting at that time. My great-uncle would have been a pastor of a Mennonite church back in Pennsylvania. who's part of Mennonite Church USA now. Um, and we got back to our house afterwards. And he said, Bob, I, I used to believe what you did, that divorce remarriage was wrong. And I still think it's not a good thing. But I looked around and I saw people who were serving God and they had effective ministries who were divorced and remarried. And, I'm, and we're called to be fruit inspectors. By their fruit you shall know them. And therefore, I don't know that I can hold to that, tru- that, that standard as tightly anymore. I think you have to give a little grace there. And I remember being shocked at hearing my great uncle say that. What was happening? Can I... I'm going to use an object lesson this morning. I hope I won't be too irreverent for this. When God's Word clearly says something... Now, these are fairly clear. I didn't clean them this morning. I apologize. They're fairly clear this morning. And I can see most of you pretty accurately. Okay? I'm going to take this, I'm going to illustrate this as the clear teachings of God's Word. Okay? But we are humans, and so we have struggles. We have sometimes have failings. And when when we and, and so these this is when I try to interpret God's word through my less than pure heart less than pure experiences of other people, I see things differently. Everything has a little bit more of a gray hue. This looks fine. Everything looks a little different. But when I put these on, I can see that this is clearly clouded. But when I have these ones on, everything looks the same. It's fine. And what happens is, when I start interpreting, when I start looking at God's Word, God's Word, what do you mean? And if I look at it with clarity of His Spirit and understand it, it's pretty plain. But when I start looking at it through my my experience of people, what I see around me, and I try to interpret it through these, there's a lot more gray matter than being clear and black and white. Does that make sense? That's what my great-uncle was doing, is that he took a clear teaching of Scripture and he used relativism to say, you know, Bob, that might be true for you, but that's not necessarily true for this person over here. Therefore, this doesn't always mean what it says. I see your brows furrowing. 
When we get things switched around, do I look at my experiences through the light, through the lens of God's word, or do I look at the word through the lens of my life experiences? Does that make sense? What, which do we put first? Because if we get them backwards, we're going to cloud the whole issue. But when we put truth in its proper place first, then we can clearly see what is clear and what is not. There we go. I'd like to look at two more just real quick examples just to illustrate this. The head, headship covering. And I call it the headship covering because I think the headship has a whole lot more to do than just with the ladies. It includes us men in this as well. Um, that's another whole topic. I won't go there this morning. Let me ask you a question. And I, if you can, you can respond. Are you allowed to respond here? Sure. Okay, all right. Thank you. <laughs> I'm much more of an interactive person. We have a small congregation, so we, we, we interact for a little more. Is, is the headship veiling a salvation issue? Okay, let me ask you to change it. Does the Scripture clearly say that the headship veiling should be worn. Okay. Sometimes we get the wrong answer because we're asking the wrong question. It's the question shouldn't be is the headship veiling a salvation issue. The question should be is the headship veiling an obedience issue. Because if it's an obedience issue then it can morph into a salvation issue if we know it and re refuse to follow it. Now, I believe there will be, be godly women in heaven who were not veiled. But if I take that understanding and I put this, put the, and I start to interpret Scripture through that lens... All of a sudden, it's not that important. And we don't have to really follow that, do we? But if I put on this clear, clear teachings of Christ's Word, and I look at that, then I can look at my... look at other people. Elizabeth Elliot. I don't know if she's in heaven or not. That's up to the Lord to decide. But she had a godly ministry. I could look at someone like that, and I could say... From the clear teachings of Scripture, I let her in God's hands. But I know what it says, and if I want to be free, I need to follow truth. That is what we base our life upon. That is what we do. And just real quickly, you know, um, our attire, it's so easy to, to make excuses one way or another. We look at someone else, well, they're Christians, and they dress this way. And, and I don't know, your church is probably a whole lot different than, than mine or other ones that I've been a part of back east and things like that. But it seems that there's always a race to the bottom for the lowest common denominator. You know, one, one person starts wearing something that just pushes the edge a little bit. And then, well, if they're okay, then I can too. And, and we start to put on the wrong glasses first. Rather than saying, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? I had a young lady sit in our home a while back and go on for better than an hour 
as to why it is okay for women to wear slacks. And um, you know what's interesting is that the world gets the distinction between men and women and the need to dress differently better than sometimes we as Christians do. And I'm speaking of Christians in large. And I'll give you a case in point. You guys know who Bruce Jenner is, was, whatever? He was, a, he was an athlete. Oh, I don't know how you describe that. But he, was a, he, was a, he was an Olympic athlete. He was one of the best men in whatever sport that he competed in. Well, a number of years back, he decided that he was going to be a woman. Guess one of the first things he did differently? He dressed differently. He started wearing skirts. He started wearing all these other things. And I was like, wait a minute. They get it. They understand that men and women are to dress differently. Better than sometimes we do. Sorry. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to be light into this world. There is so much ambiguity. There is so much clouding the issues, graying the issues. God calls us to be his clear light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. People are going to see you. They're going to see there's something different about you. And you are to be reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be reflecting the truth of his word. That it's different. That it's life changing. They are looking for something that is real. And the challenge I leave with us this morning is this. Am I, by my words, by my actions, am I calling into question the clear teachings of God's, of God's truth, of God's word? Or am I clearly showing the unchangeableness of his gospel? You know, the world around us is looking for something that is real. They want something that lasts. We have a powerful, solid, firm foundation that can never be shaken, no matter how this world sways or twists or turns. Let us not be ashamed of it, but rather let us boldly and firmly stand upon that truth and proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world.